<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Well, it's that time once again. I'm Mick Garris, and it's time for the bite-sized, fun-sized episode of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And the way you ask me anything is by sending your questions to producer Joe Russo. Joe, how are you? I'm doing very well, Mick. How are you? I'm doing better than I have any right to. Thank you very much. You, uh, you, got, you got your second shot. You're, you're invincible. I am now invincible. I am invulnerable. I am the man of steel. I've had my two vaccinations and I'm feeling frisky. Good. I'm very happy to hear it. And I think lots of our listeners will be happy to hear that as well. Um, get your shots. So, uh, yes. Get your shots. I can't, I can't wait. Uh, so shall we, shall we dive in? We've got a lot to cover. I think it's time. All right. So let's open with, Matt, who asks, what is the most underrated horror film you've seen recently? Well, if they're really underrated, I don't usually watch them. But uh, ah, well, what's the best horror film you've seen recently, Mick? Okay, I'd have to say The Vigil. I was very impressed by that. It's an independent movie just released at the time of our recording. I was able to moderate a Q&A for IFC uh, that you can find on YouTube. Uh, with the uh, director, writer, and uh, lead actor, and one of the producers. And it is basically a Jewish exorcist. It's It's got a perspective that we're not used to. I wouldn't say it's underrated because I think it's being very well received, but it's a movie that could pass you by if you're not paying attention. So by all means, check out The Vigil. I completely agree. I watched it the other day and I thought it was terrific. Uh, J.D. Lifshitz uh, is a a friend of mine and and I I was super happy and proud for him. And uh, the conversation that you did with with them for IFC was great. Uh, I would also say Nick Taylor did a wonderful interview on his show with uh, the director too. Um, So check out the movie, check out all the the peripheral stuff. Uh, It's really good. I would also just throw in Keith um, Thomas, the writer director who should get lots and lots of it. I agree. It's very well done. Uh, A movie that I really enjoy that I think a lot of our fans will enjoy. I don't think it's a Mick Garris movie, but uh, there's this crazy movie called PG psycho Gorman that came out a few weeks ago. Oh yeah. And it is, it is bananas. Uh, So I, I'm just going to throw that out there because I thought it was tons, tons of fun, but uh uh, there you've got Joe's pick to click. Yep. All right. Anthony asks, Mick and Joe, what was your favorite and most challenging acting role? Uh, you've done <laughs> you've done more you've done more acting than I have, Mick. What what's uh what was your favorite and most challenging roles that you've taken on? Well, if they were challenging, I wouldn't have taken them on. I'm a terrible actor. <laughs> uh, you know, if it's the most challenging was years ago I played a forensic pathologist for Adam Rifkin in his show, Reality Show. It was a hilarious show, uh, a send-up of 
reality shows when they were new. This was years ago. And so uh, I had a lot of medical dialogue that I had to memorize for that. Uh, so that was the most challenging. I really enjoyed being in the stand because most of the uh, most of the scenes I was in, I was sharing with Stephen King. Um, and, you know, if I'm acting in one of my shows and we're on location, it's because we've run out of good actors. And, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll always select uh, somebody from, often you can't bring people in from out of town. So if you're on location, there is a limited talent pool of actors in smaller towns in particular. But um, so the stand was a lot of fun, but uh, I, I am certainly not looking for a career as an actor, but I got my SAG card doing cartoon voices for the Pink Panther. That's right. Uh, with my friend Matt Frewer, who played the Pink Panther then. So there's there's my acting resume, or at least most of it. Are you still an active SAG member, Mick? I am a SAG member. Active is not the word I would use. <laughs> Although they do send me uh, the occasion. You, you get the screeners, though. You get the SAG screeners on top of all the other ones. Yeah, but I've already gotten them for DGA and, and WTA. Right, so you got a lot of duplicates. Uh, I, yeah, no. And, and, and mo most recently you were also in, you had a cameo in the newsstand. Uh, uh, it's a one shot, uh, no lines, a dialogue. Boy, read. did a lot of people catch it and, and tweet about it. Uh, that was really fun. It was really fun. I just went up there to see how it was doing and to, to let them know I'm on their side and, and hoping for the best. And it, yep. it was a lot of fun for Josh Bowie to put me in there for my, my brief. I, I think it's a it's a great nod to to the fans and, and the legacy of the original. Uh, I haven't done too many cameos and things yet. Uh, there's a blink and you miss it cameo in my movie, The Opera Nightmare, where I was sitting uh, in front of a store in an establishing shot. Um, but but uh, I did a I, I, you, <laughs> I did a web series. Uh, I did a web series a couple years ago where i played a pimp uh and i was like asking. yeah <laughs> i played like the business pimp uh like i was like i was anyway i was like a wall street guy turned turn, turned pimp but uh that was fun you can find that on youtube if you really dig so um okay Watch residuals yeah <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't think i'm gonna see residuals on that uh momo asks uh what brought you and cynthia together how did you meet how long did you date? And speaking of acting, how many movies have you made with her as an actress? Tell ah. us all about Cynthia, please. <laughs> well, we met um, outside a Thai restaurant in Hollywood called Chandara, and she recognized me from the Z Channel interview show I was doing at the time. So oh, it wow. was way back when. This was, you know, what, 1980 or so. And so I was making my first short film at the time and she was in a band and she invited me to come see her band and uh, she told me she was a fan of the show that she loved the genre and so it was a marriage made in hell um and uh so i went and saw the band and we started dating after that and and have been together ever since so uh i had been in a band she never imagined that when we met because i looked a lot more preppy in those days when I was making my living doing publicity. But uh, um, once I started directing, uh, she had a small part in the short film that I was making at the time when we met, I put her in. That's great. 
cool. And, and of course, she is in the stand as Susan Stern. She blows up real good. She's the woman in room 217 in The Shining, where she slits her wrists and comes back as a ghost. Um, she is in Virtual Obsession as a judge who falls down an elevator shaft. So uh, all frustrations I get, I kill my wife on screen. Rather, so that, that relieves any kind of uh, frustrations we might have. I, I, my, my short film that, that got me my first job out in L.A., uh, I had tied Crystal up uh, and, and had a killer shoving a gun in her mouth and all sorts of things. So it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> fun when we can do that for those for play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's fun, fun when you can do that with the, the ones you love, I guess. Exactly. Uh, that's awesome. And, and, and 39 years you guys have been married, right? I think that's right. coming up, yeah, coming up. Yeah. In, yeah. Amazing. Unbelievable. Uh, Welch asks, could you go into detail about anything from Psycho 4, the beginning that ended up on the cutting room floor? I know we've done a lot of Psycho 4. We did a big episode on Psycho 4 a few weeks back, but uh, I don't think that question got asked. Is there, is there anything that got left on the cutting room floor? Well, I cannot go into detail on things cut, uh, left on the cutting room floor because virtually nothing was left on the cutting room floor. If it was in the script, we shot it. And, uh, you know, the bad takes, the flubbed lines, the less than stellar performances, those are all on the cutting room floor, but no material of note. Uh, if, if you found a shooting script, um, it would be pretty much what the movie was. I don't remember any scenes being dropped at all. That's pretty incredible. Uh, and I'm sure the producers liked that too. <laughs> well, there was no um, time or money to, to shoot things that we couldn't afford. <laughs> There you go. Uh, Jeremy asks, aside from coronavirus zombies, which God, that would be horrible, and, and their ilk, how do you think the pandemic might influence horror movies going forward? Well, it already has in a very uh, superior way with Host, which is a movie that could not exist without there being the coronavirus. I don't know how it's going to affect it because as time passes, Hopefully, what we are seeing is a diminution of the effects of the, uh, of the virus. People are getting vaccinated. Uh, cases are going down, although there are idiotic states that are uh, getting rid of all of the restrictions for wearing masks and, and social distancing and all that stuff way before they should. So I don't know. Uh, I hope that it's in surprising ways. I hope that, you know, I don't want to see a coronavirus zombie movie. Uh, <laughs> no. but, but if they're made with the ingenuity that the makers of, of Host put, to, put into great effect, then I'm all for it. I think you have to find ways to talk about the issues that came up during the pandemic uh, and, and, and speak to them allegorically, you know? Yeah, and and it should be a side right? issue. It shouldn't be the center of it. It should be, you know, we're living in this world at this time, and this is the effect it has on the greater story. It isn't the yeah. greater story itself. It is an atmosphere in which to set our story. I, you know, and I think I think the people who are afraid of vaccines and are doing their quote unquote research on the internet and and that cult kind of all cult following that's that's developed around it i think like there, there's something about that that could be explored that could be very scary and interesting um you know that's not coronavirus zombies 
Uh, yeah, that's my exactly. two cents. The whole idea of cults and 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 believing things that uh, are put out on the internet, uh, which has no journalistic standards. I think that you know, that I'd love to see in all the president's men for today. Uh, oh yeah, together yeah. With, with that kind of wisdom and ingenuity. I think there's going to be a lot of great movies that come out about this period, as long as they don't speak to, I think the the despair that, that, that the period brought to you know so uh, kind of fall, following up on on that question uh justin asks how do you make a horror movie for a culture that appears to try to inspire horror movies with real life actions uh, <laughs> well the the best way to make any kind of horror movie at any period of time is to make it personal don't try and scare the audience try and and tap into your own fears. If it scares you, it's going to be universal. Uh, I think the deeper you go into your own fears and the more bravely you plumb the depths of the sources of your fears, I think the, the better it is to connect with an audience regardless of the time or place. It's what, what frightens you now, you know, as simple as a spider or as, as vast as a pandemic, but just make it personal. That's the only way I, I would know how to approach it. I completely agree. Uh, kind of, I guess, you know, sticking towards the theme of uh, modern takes on, on things. Brian King asks, and I think this is an interesting question. How do you think the quote unquote big reveal regarding the nature of the beast in your adaptation of the mummy with Clyde Barker would fare in today's social media climate? Do you think it would have been embraced or might it spark the cancel culture furor? Well, the big reveal, one of the big reveals in the Clive Barker mummy story we were doing was that a central character was a trans character. Um, it was much more surprising and unique and and there had not been so much trans people uh living in our society outwardly you know they weren't out about it and there there just weren't that many of them at that time so it was something that could be well like crying game crying ba game all hinged on its big reveal that the central character is trans and that was shocking but it wasn't done in an exploitive manner. And that's one of the reasons, I mean, Neil Jordan was, is a great filmmaker and has made many, many terrific original movies. Um, in the case of this, it was just one element in a, a story by an openly gay uh, writer and screenwriter in Clive Barker, um, whose world included trans people and still to this day as all of ours do um but uh, whether i don't think it would be a cancel culture thing so much as um something that would not be so shocking i mean it had an important part in the whenever we did it was either late 80s or early 90s when it was written um but today i i think it would just be one of the surprising reveals handled in the proper way. I, I can't imagine a cancel culture thing uh, around that reveal today. No, I, I, I can't either. And considering that, that, you know, Clive is an openly gay author uh, himself. I, I just, 
I, I would have to think that the movie would probably have a, a, a positive LGBTQ spin. Um, yeah. So, Although, of course, it was an evil character, but um, sure. That you know, you can yeah, have. So, so is so is so is Sleepaway Camp, and that's that's kind of a movie that's been embraced by that yeah. community too. So I I don't know. The, the whole know? thing about inclusive is good and bad of right. every every person every of every stripe yeah yeah i agree uh matt writes you mentioned on the last podcast how you rarely co-write when you do what has been the process and what would the ideal way of doing it be if you were asked to collaborate well, the ideal way, uh, there is no ideal way. It depends on the personality of who you've worked with. Um, you know, I've co-written with Tom McLaughlin, with Richard Christian Matheson, with Steve Niles, and each one was done in a very different way. And they were friends. And, you know, I, I don't really enjoy the co-writing process unless it's with somebody you completely trust and who is a friend. And, uh, and I've, I've written with Clive as well. Um, but, uh, in the case of both Tommy and, and, uh, Richard Christian, we would take a segment here. You write the first half, I'll write the last half. And then you rewrite the second half and I'll rewrite the first half. And then we'll just go through it together and make notes and the like. In the case of Steve Niles, I wrote a script from his story all the way through and then gave it to him to do his pass all the way through. So it, it's different in each way. Um, uh, but, but with Tommy and, and RC, it was, it was pretty much the same by doing splitting it into halves and then trading halves and then just going over what's left. Yeah. My writing partner and I, we just ping pong the pages back and forth and we work independently until we have, uh, a draft and then we go through it together uh, page by page line by line and and kind of you know tweak and modify in in you know in one room or with zoom virtually but yeah. but uh yeah that's that's been our process so i there's it's i think it's really fascinating to hear how people do it and you're right i think everyone does it differently yeah and it, you know uh, one of the main reasons that i don't co-write is that I'm not very, I don't like being confrontational. And when there's a point of contention, when both of us feel strongly about it, I don't want to fight about it. And right. especially because I'm working with a friend, um, yeah. and it's not worth it. You know, it's never gotten down to that really nasty part that I know happens between some co-writers. But I, I just don't want to get to the point where it's like one of us wins and one of us loses. Yeah. I, it, it's not worth it. And, and I really like working independently anyway. Yeah, no, I, I think you really, if you're going to have a, a long time writing partner, you have to have someone that it's almost like a marriage. You have to be able to come to agreements and, and be okay with it and comfortable. And, you know, not everyone can do that. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, to each his own. Uh, Richard asks, could you or Joe offer suggestions or advice for writers who are not yet represented or managed uh, if they find themselves in a situation where a company or producer is interested in their script and are dealing with them one-on-one? -on -one? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think 
it's a pretty easy answer to that. If somebody is genuinely interested in your script, go to a lawyer and say, these guys are interested in my script. They work on a percentage basis, uh, yep. unless, depending, some of them will charge you an hourly and then just don't go to that guy. But if they're seriously ready to make a deal, go to a lawyer. Until that point, they're just messing with you and they may or may not be real. Look at their background and what they've made and who they've worked with. Um, if they don't want to pay you for it, a lot of people will option things for free. And that's common even, even at the studio level, producers who have studio deals who will do a, a free option. But if you're at the point where they're ready to make a commitment, then they need to pay up and you need to have a contract that a lawyer on your side is working for. Because if it's only a one-sided contract from their end, it's only to benefit them, not you. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're, you're right. <laughs> Get a lawyer. Um, Robert writes, could you talk about your experiences with virtual obsession? I liked the cast a lot. It was great to see Dan Martin once again appear in your films. Tell me about Virtual Obsession. This isn't one I'm actually familiar with because it's not on your IMDb, which is interesting. Oh, sure it is. Yeah. No, it I, no called, it's not. I, I, dug, I dug through it. It's probably uh, under Host. It was based on a book by Peter James called Host, a British writer, kind of a British Stephen King at the time. Um ah. And it was adapted by Preston Sturgis, the son of the great Preston Sturgis. His only, wow. produ his only produced screenplay, I brought him in to write it because uh, A, he's a very talented writer, and B, his father was one of my idols. I mean, he, he, he died at a very early age and made some of the most iconic films. He was the first writer-director in Hollywood. Um, but it was a science fiction romance. It was a great cast. It was Peter Gallagher and Bridget Wilson, uh, who later married Pete Sampras and never worked as an actress again. And uh, the great Mimi Rogers, whom I had first met, met when I read her for Sleepwalkers. And so it's, it's a really complicated or interesting story about a woman who comes to a guy who works in AI at a university she realizes she's discovered she has a brain tumor and she's going to die. And she wants to download her mind into AI form until and freeze her body cry, uh, cryogenically until the science is right that they can bring her back and re-download her mind into her cryogenically unfrozen body. And wow. it turns into a triangle between Peter Gallagher and his wife, played by Mimi Rogers, and this beautiful young student. And it's it's something I really like. Uh, it was an ABC TV, three-hour TV movie, uh, a length that Desperation is the only other one of those I've made. And we shot it in Salt Lake City, where we had done most of the stand. And so I'd, I'd been there before, but nobody saw it. The, it was always called Host, which was the name of the book. And they had a new head of programming at ABC. They changed the title to Virtual Obsession, 
which sounds like a lifetime movie. And <laughs> any uh, at that time, you know, uh, any subject dealing with AI would get mostly a male audience. And uh, nobody at that time was going to watch a movie called Virtual Obsession. Plus, they changed it two weeks before it aired. So nobody knew who it was, what oh, it was. No. So the yeah. press that had been preceding it, you know, it, it just nobody saw it. But it's really, uh, you know, uh, I really had a good time and I loved working with that cast. And yeah, the the question mentioned Dan Martin, who worked with me in The Stand and in Dead and in this. And, and he's one of my favorite actors to work with. Part of great story. So it was a great experience and it was sad that nobody saw it. It is available on video, but, um, you know, you, you pays your money, you takes your chances. I kind of want to, I want to, I want to find it. I got to see if I can track it down. It sounds awesome. Uh, a DVD. That works. That works on Amazon. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll check on Amazon. I, I, uh, yeah, no, it sounds really cool. And look, I certainly know the, uh, the pain of title changes to your movies. So, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, I, I can, I can sympathize there, it's, but it sounds great. I can't, I can't wait to watch it. And hopefully more people uh, will find it after hearing about it on the latest postmortem ask Mick anything. Yeah. Uh, so with that, Mick, it, 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 it's a, it's a fun movie. It's obscure. Not many people have seen it and it's very different from other things I've done, but yes, let us bring to an end. Another, uh, fun size AMA. Ask me anything. Joe, tell us where we can send our questions for Ask Mick Anything. You can send them to me at Joe Russo Tweets or Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram, respectively, or uh, to Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram. All right. Looking forward to the next one, Joe. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mick. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.